Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today is actually our Reformation Day special. And, you know, it's kind of it's funny because we're doing the Reformation Day special today on indulgences. Uh, instead of Beyond Luther, because I didn't have enough time to prep another couple of Beyond Luther episodes. But, even though we're not doing multiple Beyond Luther episodes, we are still doing multiple episodes related to Catholicism. Uh, so today for the Reformation Day special, we're talking about indulgences, and then the next two weeks we'll be talking about the perpetual virginity of Mary, which I was going to make into one episode, but as I got done with the historical survey, I was like, this is going to take a lot more than one episode. And so I put up a poll seeing if people would prefer one long episode or two normal episodes, and so two episodes is what was voted on, which makes my life a little bit easier, to be honest, because I have more time to make the second one uh, more prepped up. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're doing three episodes related to Catholicism. And I think you'll enjoy what I've done with the Perpetual Virginity of Mary discussion. And then we will do an episode on Apollinarianism. And I'm not sure how many episodes that will be, but it'll be uh, its application will be in relation to William Lane Craig's proposition of neo-Apollinarianism. Wow. Anyway, um, so let's go ahead and do our episode on indulgences, and hopefully this is helpful, interesting. And since this is a Reformation Day special, it'll focus more on the historical aspect of indulgences, but we will talk a little bit about the, the theological summary overall. Um, while whenever we get to the perpetual Virginia Mary, we'll have the first episode focus on historical discussion, and then the second will be on the biblical data and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, let me see where we're at here. So as always, this is a summary, and things can always be fleshed out a lot more. Now, whenever we're talking about indulgences, it's good to start around the time of the Great Schism. The Great Schism, of course, was whenever the Eastern Church and the Western Church um, had differences that arose on a number of issues, and then the Great Schism occurred where um, they, they broke apart, and then forever you'll have the Western Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have their beginnings in that sense. Um, our interest is on the issue of purgatory. Uh, the Great Schism had a lot of uh, major focal points like the Filioque Clause, which we talked about through and through Nicaea, and then... Um, the issue of politics and papal authority. Uh, but there's also the slight variation in purgatory. The East did not teach this doctrine, yet in the West, it was becoming a major idea. So for, for the dating context, this is, you know, 11th century, around, you know, the 10 hundreds, uh, 1054 is when the Great Schism is officially marked, but it, it kind of, it, it's not that simple. You can't just pinpoint it. Um, but regardless, within the West, there it was taught that various aspects of sin's penalty um, in purgatory could be removed on earth by penance or what is called an indulgence. An indulgence is a pardon for that temporal penalty of sin experienced in purgatory. So we're going to explain that because you have to understand purgatory to understand indulgences. And what needs to be stressed here is that purgatory, contrary to what we typically think, is not the same as hell. Purgatory was the place for people to go 
to pay for their sins that they hadn't confessed or done penance for, while hell was for those people who weren't even in a state of grace. They didn't have any grace. They were bound to hell. Indulgences were for the people who were in a state of grace on their way to heaven, but still had some penalties to pay for. Okay, now full disclosure here, that explanation is modern Catholicism's explanation. I'm not sure, honestly, if that's consistent with the early ideas of purgatory. Um, I, I must admit that I highly doubt it, especially since we start getting into those explanations of venial sins and mortal sins whenever we get to Thomas Aquinas. But that's what purgatory is, at least today. So if you if you need to know the difference, that's the difference. Um, and we'll, we'll flesh that out a little bit more. So uh, an indulgence is essentially a pardon for that temporal punishment that you would experience in purgatory. Um, so if I died and I didn't confess or do penance of all these minor sins, if you will, then I would have to pay that penalty in purgatory before going to heaven. But an indulgence could pay that for me so I can get out of purgatory faster. So if a believer died without such a payment for the punishment they owed, that outstanding debt would be dealt with in the fire of purgatory. So that that's that's the summary. Eventually, the Pope would be recognized as having the power to release souls from purgatory because of the papacy's control over what is called the Treasury of Merits. Now, the Treasury of Merits were the merits or the works of the saints. So they had this, this bank, if you will, of the works or merits of the saints, and the Pope could transfer those merits to souls in purgatory via an indulgence and thus pay off the remaining punishment and release a soul from purgatory. So basically you can borrow the merits um, from the treasury of merit and apply it to a soul in purgatory and release that soul from purgatory, basically giving them a fast pass to heaven uh, in that sense. But again, this is not a ticket to get out of hell card. This is a ticket to get out of the refinement already on the road to heaven card. Uh, and, and I think that is a... Uh, careful distinction we need to make whenever we're discussing with Catholics because uh, it's a straw man to say otherwise. Now, um, obviously, whenever we start talking to universalists and they start having this purgatorial view of hell where all people eventually go through and be saved, uh, Catholics would reject that, um, at least formally. They're, they have what's called the private hope, but that's, an, that's another issue. Sorry, that was a little bit of a side tangent there. Um, so... These merits, the merits of the saints, the Pope could transfer them and apply them to individuals. Now, the East, the Eastern Church, did not hold to purgatory, at least not in the same sense as the West. Uh, even in Orthodoxy today, they would see that they they some hold to a purgatory, some don't. They're not dogmatic on it, but they didn't hold to purgatory in the same sense as the West, nor did they hold to the treasury of merits nor did they hold to indulgences. So that's something, if you want to know a difference between uh, the East and the Western churches in terms of Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Um, let me see. So back to our historical survey. So originally, when indulgences were on the scene, they were not received by payment. Okay, uh, This is something we, we think about quite often. We, we think, well, you know, you pay to get out of purgatory. Uh, but they weren't received by payment originally, but instead through an exceptionally good deed. Um, so you can get an indulgence if you did a, uh, a good deed, and then your penalty in purgatory would be paid for 
uh, even without that confession, it'd be applied to your account. You can think of it as bank transactions, really. It's, it's very transactional. Um, now, the Crusades would be the shift of this. Um, indulgences during the Crusades would begin to be sold for cash, with the payment being considered that good deed. Now, for further clarification here, formally, the money was not the cause for the satisfaction so even if you're buying an indulgence, it wasn't the money that paid you to get out of purgatory, but it was the good deed of charity of giving that money that got you out of purgatory. Uh, you can see how that would be a slippery slope, though. So during the Crusades, uh, indulgences would be utilized as a motivation in the Crusades as the papacy would offer rewards and pardons from temporal penalties in purgatory for service in battle. Now, Pope Eugenius III in the 12th century, would go further and promise eternal life for those who fought in the Second Crusade. And in the Third Crusade, if you merely hired a knight to crusade on your behalf, then you could receive an indulgence. So you can see how this got muddied really uh, quickly during the Crusades for this, the, the cause of the Crusade, right? And, and the Crusades would have a number of, effect, of effects on Christendom, uh, especially like strengthening the influence of the papacy, but when it comes to indulgences, it really paved the way for payments to be accepted for indulgences. And eventually, indulgences would be able to cover the souls of those who are already in purgatory. Uh, and what I mean by this is that eventually you could purchase the indulgence to quicken a loved one's passage from purgatory into heaven, where it's not just for you, but it's for someone you love, someone you care about, right? They already departed. So let's time jump a little bit more to the 13th century with Thomas Aquinas. Um, and this is where we find the more robust and influential treatment of indulgences. Now, I already mentioned the explanation that Catholics would give for indulgences with, um, you know, those already on the path versus those who aren't in the state of grace. Well, Thomas Aquinas would really be the one who, who makes those distinctions essential in terms of he formulated what is the difference between a mortal sin and a venial sin. And so this went beyond just saying, well, this sin is more serious or less serious. They, they were categorized in a particular way. Now, serious sins for Aquinas are those mortal sins that kill the soul, and that is turn the soul away from God and destroy spiritual life. Less serious sins uh, would be the venial sins, meaning pardonable sins. The, these types of sins would only wound a soul and did not turn that soul away from God, but instead brought spiritual disorder into the soul's life. One still remained in a state of grace as the soul was just wounded and mortal sins would kill a soul uh, and leave one outside of a state of grace. So this, because mortal sins killed the soul, it would call for penance in order to have grace bestowed upon a person. Otherwise, one would expect to be damned eternally. So essentially, uh, if you committed a mortal sin and you didn't do penance, you would be doomed to hell. For venial sins, they could be forgiven through various means, such as the mass, prayer, um, and various acts of contrition. And if those sins weren't accounted for in that way during your life, then those sins that were not accounted for brought temporal punishments, and those punishments were considered necessary to purify the soul from the effects of sin. And that would be paid off in purgatory. So for Aquinas, the punishment could be paid off during one's earthly life by penance or indulgence, right? And the Pope could also release souls from purgatory because of the God-given right where the papacy controlled the treasury of merits. Those merits 
were again essentially acts of saints prior who did above and beyond what was required. And so they had this extra uh, merit that you can borrow from. Aquinas reasoned that the Pope could transfer this surplus to the souls in purgatory via indulgence. Now, during the 14th and 15th century, uh, John Huss, or Jan Huss, arose as a preacher following John Wycliffe's writings as a critic of the Catholic Church's doctrine on various points, including indulgences. Uh, Jan Hus is one of those early reformers before Luther. Uh, he declared that indulgences were useless because God bestowed forgiveness on those who truly repented. Uh, he would eventually be excommunicated, but he continued to write against the church and indulgences regardless. And many who had once supported Huss in the calls for reform turned back uh, from his movement when he went after such doctrines like indulgences. Um, and so there were two different parties that would arise in Bohemia, the Hussites or the Wycliffs and the Catholics. Now, Huss argued that the church was the body of the elect of all ages. Christ was the head of the church, not the Pope. He also argued against the infallibility of the Pope and pointed out there are many errors. Uh, one of those arguments against the papacy was uh, that the Eastern Christians had lived fine without the papacy for many, many years. Eventually, Huss would be martyred. Uh, he'd be stripped of clothing, and he would be committed to demons by those executing him. He was offered pardon um, for abandoning his beliefs, but instead he stated, quote, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached, end quote. Now, there were certainly other critics of indulgences before the Reformation. This is one that I just decided to, to land on. But we're going to jump to Luther now. Now, of course, Martin Luther lived during the 1500s, and that's the 16th century. And in 1515, Pope Leo X issued a sale of indulgences in Germany with the purpose of bringing finances to build uh, the Basilica in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. An individual named John Tetzel acted as a papal agent in selling indulgences with various means of emotional manipulation with heavy promises of instant release from purgatory for loved ones as soon as one purchased an indulgence. Uh, a saying arose from this, quote, as soon as the coin in the money box rings, the soul from purgatory springs, end quote. Tetzel even once claimed that one can purchase an indulgence and be forgiven from their own sin, regardless of how horrible their sin may be, meaning that quite literally one could buy their way into heaven, even if it was a mortal sin. Uh, and so, obviously, the motivation for this was purely finances. In 1517, John Tetzel uh, was preaching in Wittenberg, uh, and this elicited Luther, who was um, a resident in Wittenberg, to react as his people were buying these indulgences, believing that salvation could be bought. Now, this is what led to the famous 95 Thesis that was nailed to Wittenberg Castle's uh, door, um, and it was you know, put up on the public board for discussion on October 31st, uh, instead of this weird idea that it was this big scandal. Now he was putting up for discussion. It was a 95 thesis. It was a normal thing to do, but it would cause a big uproar whenever it was dispatched by um, folk taking it, copying it and distributing it. Anyway, uh, the thesis, these 95 theses, if you've never read them, were entitled The Disputations on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. So their main critiques were on the abuse of indulgences, not against indulgences themselves. Of course, as time went on, Luther would move away from that, and then you would start seeing the other things that we think of with the Reformation, like justification 
uh, and denying purgatory and, and things of that nature. Those came after. his. The initial first move was a critique of the presentation of Tetzel on the abuse of indulgences, not necessarily the doctrine as it was officially taught. In addition, whenever you read uh, these theses, you'll find that they focused upon a religion that was inward uh, and more heart-centric opposed to um, merely external works, right? So you can see that those gears start turning that would eventually snowball into other issues. Now, he would eventually be under attack from a variety of individuals, but of course, he also gained the support from various individuals, uh, such as the humanists. And you can go listen to Beyond Luther Part 1 for that. Um, and we talked about the humanists, such as Derridus Erasmus, who actually went back and forth with Luther on the bondage of the will. And Erasmus, even though he disagreed with Luther on the bondage of the will, actually called indulgences a filthy trade to fill money boxes rather than enrich people's spirituality. So you see this, um, this these Catholics, you know, everyone then was Catholic, right? So you see Catholics other than the reformers also recognizing the issue with the abuse of indulgences, which is significant. So let's fast forward to 1562. In 1562, we have the third stage of the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, which we do have an episode on in Beyond Luther, I believe, was essentially a counter-reformation. It was the this meeting to address issues, to clarify issues, and to address true charges from the Reformers. So the Catholic Church pa passed various anti-Protestant decrees on um, various issues, including the issue of indulgences. But... In its pronouncements, it also sought to condemn and reform the abuses of indulgences. Session 35 in the third degree, and you can go read that for yourself in full. You can pull it up online if you want. But basically, it's saying, we recognize indulgences were taught. They, they would even say that it was taught by Christ to the church um, from the most ancient of times, and that it should be retained in the church, and that it anathematizes those who assert that they are useless or those who deny that there is the power of granting indulgences. And then the same degree goes on to say that uh, these need to be um, given out with moderation, lest, you know, they're abused, essentially, um, because of various abuses have crept in, allowing for the honorable name of indulgences to be blasphemed by the heretics. And then there's another paragraph that continues to speak on this uh, in regards to the abuses. And so it wasn't just they... They wanted to keep their indulgences and gain their money via indulgences. No, they, they, they saw issues with corruptions and they, and they wanted to reform them. So that needs to be acknowledged whenever we're talking about the issue. Um, so this is to say that indulgences are still doctrine in the Catholic Church today. The Catechism of the Catholic Church um, in paragraph 1471 and 1473 states on indulgences uh, the doctrine and practices of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. Uh, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the actions of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishments due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply them to the dead. The punishment of sins. 
To understand this doctrine and the practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sins. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death in a state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. These two punishments must not be conceived as a kind of vengeance inflicted by God, but as following from the very nature of sin. And then it says, um, an act of charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment should remain. The forgiveness of sin and restoration of communion with God entails the remission of the eternal punishment of sin, but temporal punishment of sin remains. While patiently bearing sufferings and trials of all kinds, and when the day comes serenely facing death, the Christian must strive to accept this uh, temporal punishment of sin as a grace. He should strive by works of mercy and charity, as well as by prayer and various practices of penance, to put off completely the old man and to put off the new man. Now that in general, is the same as what we've been talking about. Uh, notice that they put the emphasis on charity and that it is essentially a means of purifying oneself and finalizing sanctification. It's getting rid of those temporal penalties, right? Those temporal punishments, and that is how sanctification is completed. Um, so when we first begin to look at indulgences in our contemporary setting, we're going to talk about the, the contemporary setting now. And please check my work. I, I've tried to make sure that I'm representing the Catholic position correctly. Um, so yeah, just check my work. Um, so whenever we're talking about indulgences, there's a few building blocks, right, that we need to consider. First, the general discussion about the ad for life. We've already kind of mentioned it. In the, in the doctrine of Catholicism, you have two destinations. You have heaven and hell. Now, heaven, you can either go to immediately or th through purgatory or purification. So there's still only two destinations. And purgatory, again, is not hell. Heaven is for, quote, those who die in God's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified, end quote. And that's in 1023 of the Catholic Catechism. That's a paragraph. So if you read the Catholic Catechism, the paragraph 1023 is what those numbers mean. And, quote, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of the eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, end quote. And that's 1030. So... You have those two options of heaven immediately, those who die in God's grace in perfect friendship, perfectly purified. They, they have no temporal punishment waiting for them in purgatory. They're good. They're, they're there. And then you have those who die but are imperfectly purified. And so they, they complete their sanctification in purgatory by undergoing purification with those temporal punishments of sin. Those who commit a mortal sin go to hell without the proper penance. So if you commit a mortal sin, you're out of the state of grace, you go to hell. So purgatory is a place of purification, which needs to be understood differently than the punishment for those who die outside the state of grace. I've repeated this several times just to make sure that it sticks. I know, I know that repeating thing gets a little bit annoying sometimes, but I also talk fast. And so I really want to hit that hammer a couple times. Um, so the appeal for the doctrine of purgatory in terms of Scripture typically lands on 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1.7. Uh, and purgatory is the means by which a person achieves the holiness necessary to enter into heaven with joy. Um, 
Purgatory was hammered out at the local council of Florence, which was an attempted council uh, to be ecumenical, but it, but it wasn't. And uh, the Council of Trent, which is for the Catholics, an ecumenical council. Um, but, you know, ecumenical councils, once the Great Schism occurred, that, that's a different... It's a hard sell. Anyway, so those in purgatory um, can receive aid from prayers of the living on earth, uh, the purchase of indulgences to lessen the time needed for purification, and the dedication of masses, and so on. So there's ways to give loved ones um, aid in purgatory to complete their journey through purgatory, and obviously there are ways that you can um, kind of expedite your, your life through holiness and um, so on. So as quoted already, um, the Catholic Catechism explains indulgences um, on a number of issues, but it also continues with some additional points that we should note. So in regards to communion of the saints, uh, this communion unites the saints in heaven and us and allows for the, the exchange of spiritual goods, and that's in 1475. These spiritual goods are considered to be the treasury of the church, which has the merits of Christ, the prayers and good works of Mary, and the prayers and good works of the saints, and that's in 1476 and 77. Now, in regards to how to obtain indulgences, they are gained through the church, which is the means of accessing this treasury. So, so here's where we can just briefly summarize the critique. Um, the, the critique of indulgences is that... Okay, so let's, let's go back to... Um, 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1.7 are good texts to talk about purification. The thing is that the context could easily be discussed in reference to the final judgment and the final weighing of our works, not an intermediate state between now and heaven. And so whenever it comes to exegesis of those texts, no matter what, if you're talking to a Catholic, sacred tradition is the proper means of interpreting those passages. Therefore, you can't really can't really do anything about that. And so what do we do? Well, the issue with indulgences really is that it seeks to deal with a temporal punishment that has already been dealt with via Christ's work. That's really the, the main point of contention. Jesus has already dealt with the punishment and penalty and guilt of all sin. And this is why the reformers would call indulgences useless. There is no satisfaction to be paid for those who have been united to Christ. That's already been dealt with. Um, now, the means of sanctification, not sure. Um, that's actually an interesting discussion. There is a Protestant view of purgatory that eliminates that idea of dealing with temporal punishments. You may have not heard it. Um, but it's essentially purgatory is a place where we are sanctified, but it has nothing to do with satisfying punishment for sins that we haven't done penance for on earth. Uh, and so there, there is a conception of purgatory that's acceptable. The issue with Catholic purgatory is that idea of satisfying punishment that's already been dealt with. Jesus already did it. Jesus paid it all. And so that's, that's really where the dividing line is. Um, and so reformers would, would indicate that indulgences are ultimately useless. But not only that, but the treasury of the saints is said to have the merits of Christ themselves in it. If, if we have the treasury of the saints and it has the merits of Christ, Mary, and the saints, why does anyone need the merits of Mary or the saints whenever we already have the merits of Christ in this treasury? But not only that, 
if we are told that by being united to Christ, we have all spiritual blessings in Christ, then why do we not already have all these merits applied to us, right? So there's this weird, weird um, disconnect there. Um, the treasure of merits doesn't need Mary or the saints if it has the merits of Christ, as the merits of Christ, even in the catechism, is described as infinite. And here's something interesting that Luther brought up. Luther brought up, you know, if, if the papacy has power to release souls from purgatory um, on the basis of, you know, payment back when, then the papacy could release all from purgatory at any time. And so that that's, that's another issue to, to think through. Why doesn't the Pope do that? Wouldn't that be the proper thing to do? Wouldn't that be what Jesus would do? And if you're the representation of Jesus and he would pay the penalty for your sin, then wouldn't you say your sin has been paid for? I guess that would be kind of in the category of absolution. Why not have that absolution for the temporal punishments in purgatory? This little bit of a side rant. Um, but it's a very interesting unnecessary doctrine. Now, if you're going to speculate about, well, you know, maybe there's a purgatory for sanctification that doesn't require satisfaction. Okay. I don't buy it, but I get it. I understand it. There's a, there's a place where we need to be purified before we reach heaven. So maybe that's it. I wouldn't ever say that's dogmatic. And I was going to and make anathema one who didn't adhere to that. So Greg Allison in his book, um, Roman Catholic Theology and Practice and Evangelical Assessment. If you don't have it and you want more on um, Catholicism, it's really a great book. He does a great job, especially at even knocking down Strauman that we have. Um, but he states, in relation to justification, Christ has already paid the penalty. No guilt remains. He says, quote, Moreover, salvation is not dependent on the complete purification of human beings' sinful nature in this life. Rather, it is a matter of justification which is God's forensic declaration that repentant sinners are not guilty, but righteous instead because of the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to their account. While justification is not only the mighty work of God in the saving of fallen human beings, it is the one upon which rests such promises as there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.1. No condemnation means no guilt. And if there is no guilt, there is no temporal punishment to pay in purgatory and there's no need for indulgences. That's really what it boils down to, is that we already have the active obedience of Christ credited to our account. We already have the merits of Christ. We have all spiritual blessings in Christ for those who have faith in him. And we have a seal, a guarantee, that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. So I think Greg Allison's summarization here is spot on. It's about justification. Um, because whenever you mix justification with sanctification, as Catholicism does, then it makes more sense to have that purgatory. But we don't blend those two aspects. Justification is a forensic declaration that we are not guilty but righteous because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Sanctification is that which flows from it, but it doesn't alter our justification or our standing before God. So we need to recognize that they're, they're united, but they're not so united that they're mixed in a way that convolutes the gospel. Um, so I hope that this was an interesting episode. I th 
felt like it was organized. And so I hope I was correct on that. Uh, but yeah, um, next week, the perpetual virginity of Mary part one. And if you have enjoyed crisis, the cure, consider leaving a review on iTunes and becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash crisis, the cure. And until next time, have a great, great weekend.